Welcome to this episode of the Tez Magazine Debrief. Uh, I'm John Severs. I'm here as always with Gronya Hallahan and Dan Worth. I've said as always, actually, it hasn't always been the three of us, so I apologise for that. But um, I'm back again, and Gronya's back again, and Dan's back again, so hopefully that's fine for all the listeners. Um, we're going to look at the 7th of May edition today, and let's get started. Okay, so the first article today, uh, Dan, you're going to be talking about it. Yes, thanks for that. And uh, I am, and I've written the cover feature this week actually, um, which was very interesting and quite well, a very complicated area as well, which is looking at long COVID and particularly long COVID in children. Uh, it's sort of an emerging issue of the pandemic, you know, the, long, the issue of long COVID. Um, and we've written about it in generally in the past. John, you did a sort of long piece about what it might be and, and that research into what long COVID might be and what kind of symptoms we're seeing and what might be the causes, what might be the treatments is going on at rapid speed actually in the uh, medical world. And obviously the issue of how it affects children well, and, and adults, including any teachers that might get long COVID is obviously an issue. But in children particularly, we're seeing increasing numbers being affected. And so I've sort of taken a long look into what might be going on, what are the causes, what, what can the symptoms might be, um, what to look out for, how you can help those children. And as part of that, one of the people I spoke to was Dr. Elaine Maxwell from the National Institute for Health Research, who they have funded a lot of research into long COVID, including a study that's looking at long COVID in children. Uh, I caught up with Dr. Maxwell to find out a little bit more about long COVID in children and find out what teachers should be aware of. So we can have a listen to that now. Hi, Dr. Maxwell. Thank you for joining us today. Um, obviously, long COVID is a massive topic. We're hearing more and more about it in the news. It's being more widely reported. But but as a sort of top line question, then, you know, what is it? What do we know about it so far to, that we can answer with any certainty about what we think is happening? So that's a really interesting question. I mean, it is clear that there are a number of things that happen to people after a COVID-19 infection. And it's it's probably quite important to break that down into the different things. We know that a lot of people get a post-viral fatigue that we see after other viruses, but that usually resolves by 12 weeks without any treatment. So I think it's probably helpful not to include that in our definition of non-COVID. We know that uh, there are a lot of people when they go into hospital and are critically ill, they, are, they can be quite unwell for a long time afterwards and they display symptoms that are similar to some of the symptoms people with long COVID have, but it may not be associated with the virus, it may just be associated with being very ill. Um, for the people who are left, um, there are a wide range of symptoms and I think that there are a number of defining features. One is that it can be any part of the body. It's a systemic illness. It's not just respiratory. And in fact, in most surveys, breathlessness is not the most common symptom of long COVID. It's fatigue, brain fog, uh, mm. and then there are other symptoms that are less common. And uh, there are some starting to be some evidence about what might be causing that, uh, but that does then break down into different patterns for different people. So it's very hard to define what it is, but there is increasing evidence that there is a syndrome that has a physical cause that is causing a lot of people to be quite disabled, including young people. I was going to ask, and young, young people, children, you know, it's going to affect school-aged people. Again, that's obviously quite a, a, you know, a nasty element of all this as well. Yeah, so what we see is this sort of U uh, shape in people reporting symptoms. It's more common in people between 35 and 69, but that doesn't mean it doesn't occur in older people. And we're starting to look at old, frail people, 
who are having uh, problems associated with long COVID that perhaps was just put down to their age, but actually is potentially treatable. And we're seeing children. So long COVID is less common in children than adults, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. So the latest ONS um, report published on the 1st of April suggested there were 9,000 children between the age of 2 and 11 in the UK, 16,000 between 12 and 16, and uh, 54,000 between 17 and 24. So that's a significant part of the school population who may present with symptoms. I think one of the challenges around uh, understanding long COVID in children is because we were told COVID didn't really affect children and because they're unlikely to have been severely ill or to have been tested, there may well be children with long COVID who are going undiagnosed. People don't understand that these changes in this child's behaviour and ability are not due to depression from the pandemic, but might actually be due to long COVID. Mm. And, and I was going to ask there as well, like for teachers in schools, I mean, they've got enough on their plates, but what can they do? What can they look out for? What is this what might be a little telltale sign of, of a child suffering with something that could be long COVID? So I think a child who previously was performing well academically, who now doesn't seem to be able to concentrate or isn't producing good work, um, teachers should be alert to the fact that this could be long COVID. I'm not saying it is long COVID, but they should be alert to the possibility. And, and it may be that they need to have a conversation with a school nurse to talk about whether they raise this possibility with the parents. The other thing that is quite clear is that a lot of people with long COVID because of a number of mechanisms that are physical, um, can't tolerate much exercise. So children who've been good athletes should not, um, if, if they're unable to perform at the level, it's not necessarily just deconditioning. And actually for people who have this form of long COVID, encouraging them to exercise can be positively harmful. Mm. So I think those are the two things that teachers really need to look out for. And, and if they did, if that diagnosis was sort of made or if they sort of felt, yeah, there's something going on here, what are the sort of things they can do to help in those circumstances? Anything sort of useful, good advice in that regard? So um, in terms of the cognitive, uh, in terms of the inability to concentrate or brain fog or cognitive dysfunction, as it's called, there are a number of techniques that neuropsychologists can uh, apply. So it's something that happens in other conditions. It's quite common in multiple sclerosis, for example. And in that community, there are ways of helping people manage with that and improve their functional ability. So I think getting specialist advice from psychologists would be helpful and for teachers to learn a bit more from the psychologists about those techniques. Uh, for the exercise, it's not that children shouldn't exercise, it's that they should have symptom titrated exercise. So they should do a little bit, see how they feel, and then think about whether to increase that. What they really shouldn't be encouraged to do is to follow some sort of graded plan or just encouraged to get out there and work it out. Mm. Uh, obviously, long COVID is is a you know novel part of the of the coronavirus pandemic, which itself is, is obviously still you know being grappled with and, and making great strides. But there's a lot to learn with long COVID. I mean, where are we at? I mean, we've spoken before, and you said it was moving at warp speed, which I thought was very interesting that you sort of use that term because it sounds like that's clearly very different to how things usually go. So, I mean, is there should people have sort very. of yeah, should confidence that there could be maybe not a cure, but a sort of a, the understanding is moving to have that the treatments will will be quite well understood sooner rather than later 
Yeah, and, and, and I have to say it is because of the pandemic, a lot more attention and money has been put into it. And, and certainly there have been other conditions like chronic fatigue syndrome and ME um, that have been just as complex that haven't had the attention uh, put on them. But yes, um, research is commissioned and reported very quickly. So we're getting things commissioned within two, two months of uh, putting a call out. We're getting publications within nine months. What we're starting to see is what some of the causes might be. So uh, there is some evidence that uh, people have organ impairment. And so managing that will help the symptoms. But the two areas that are, are really looking interesting are uh, the issues around clotting. So we know that in acute COVID infections, clotting is a big issue. There is increasing evidence that actually in long COVID, there is some degree of small clots happening and they may be causing the symptoms. And there are some trials already started looking at um, anti-clotting and anti-inflammatory drugs that might either prevent long COVID or treat it. Um, and, and the other uh, thing that seems to be, um, there's more and more evidence that actually COVID is affecting way the immune uh, system response. So uh, T cell responses um, and some quite detailed immunology that will help us look for drugs that will help us to treat long COVID. Mm. So I think we will see some of those uh, drug trial results coming in the next sort of nine months to a year, which sounds a long time if you've got long COVID, but it's very short term in some term, oh, short time in terms of medical research. Mm. I think um, what we do to support people while we're finding out about uh, what we can do to cure it, hopefully, is really to understand that people are really experiencing this. So there's been a lot of concern that the symptoms are self-reported, but there are studies now coming out that are looking at clinical records, looking at diagnostic tests and showing, no, actually, what people say they have is matched by the diagnostic indicators. So we need to believe people. And one of the biggest problems that makes people's anxiety worse, makes their stress worse, is when they say this is what I'm experiencing and people are saying it's all in your head. Mm. I guess for children, that can, that can be even more sort of prone to happen. So again, if a, if a child says some of the things, it's important that a teacher or indeed a parent, anyone else, sort of stops and takes that seriously and engages with them properly on that. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I do understand it's hard for teachers because there's all sorts of reasons why a child's performance might deteriorate. And I recognise that all the time that they've been off school and been socially isolated will have an impact on them. But if they give a specific set of um, symptoms, then I think teachers need to be alert to that and seek advice from somebody else before they just put it down to social isolation. Yeah, and so you can see this. It's, um, I mean, that was a, you know, we could have talked for a long time, Dr. Maxwell and I, because there is, there is so much to understand about long COVID in children. And, and, you know, I spoke to so many different people for the article, both people who've been affected by it, teachers and, and a lot of academics in this world. And it's quite clear that there is a diversity of opinion, although there is, I think there is a sort of a general coalescence around some similarities on what's going on. But it's certainly a complicated area. And I don't think the understanding here is that teachers need to now have this kind of chapter and verse knowledge of long COVID in children or be you know, medical experts. But it's clear that it's an issue that I think is going to become more prevalent. I think you will see children or, or their parents saying, my son, daughter, you know, is not well, they're off. We think it's long COVID. These are the symptoms. These seem to be similar. You might see GPs being more confident in making that diagnosis. 
Um, that's something that comes up in the article is about, you know, GPs obviously have a role in, the, in a way to play. They need to, their knowledge base will build up to understand what to look out for. And that might help give schools more certainty about, yes, this child has long COVID. How do we help them? What do we need to look out for? But it's not a simple situation. So I think it's something that's the awareness, I think to me, strikes me that awareness and understanding and having that kind of open-mindedness that this is a new issue coming out of the pandemic is the most important thing right now. It's interesting as well that this is not just for the children, is it? It's the, it's the staff and and the overriding sort of um, sort of hit tip for schools is treat people as individuals. This isn't a, mm. you know, whether it's a child or an adult, you know, believe them first off and second off, you know, don't think there's some sort of set timetable or set response that will be applicable to all these people definitely you're definitely right i think that, that thing of if someone's got it you can't then say okay you've got a diagnosis so how long until you're better it, it just isn't going to work like that and and to have that mindset you have to be flexible and that's a point that another academic makes you, you know you have to have a plan and it has to be flexible and you have to continually return to it and say okay how's it going are they coping with the, the two days in school is the homework level too much you know are we expecting too much we can't be well that's the plan you know you've got to stick to it now so yeah so have a read of dan's feature this week i think it's full of information and tips and it should help us support um staff and pupils who uh, are suffering with long covid okay feature two this week is a, a really interesting article from john morgan who spoke to an anthropologist who spent some time with uh, forgive my pronunciation if this is wrong with the bayaka pit community in uh, the congo and Part of that research, I mean, she, she looked at all aspects of their culture, but part of their research, her research was looking at how they learned and how learning was passed down through generations. And she's keen to talk to teachers about this and to explore it further because she wants to see how representative these, what you might call natural learning codes in this community are to the education community. How much is How much of this is sort of applicable in a classroom? And... I mean, to distill it in a quite a small format, you should read the feature to get all the information. But essentially, anything that can be copied was sort of learnt by uh, imitation and play. So, you know, simple behaviours, social norms, um, you know, habits. This was all taught, if, in effect, through um, through watch watching and playing. So there's a scene in the article about tapping a machete on the floor and how you go through the jungle with these machetes. I mean, that wasn't the kids were sat down and, and told how to do this. This is something they did. It was active. Um, but more abstract things were actually directly taught. So there was this mix of uh, what today we might call progressive or, well, sorry, in the, in the UK, we might call progressive and traditional teaching. You know, there's this, there's this amalgamation and what, uh, the the uh, academic in, involved wants to know is okay how representative of this and my first thought of that was wow this does she not watch twitter because god the trad v prog debate is is mad um but the thing that struck me about the feature i don't know if it struck you too as well was that this is how most teachers teach right this is you know we have our wars on Twitter, where people, are, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, I'm a chalk and talk teacher. I'm a traditional teacher. I don't do anything else. And people say, no, I'll only ever do group work. But actually, you go into many schools, and it's this sort of, sort of uh, amalgamation of the two that is the reality. And it seems to be this is how the the Bayaka people are are doing teaching. Well, that was a that was a fantastic uh, summation of a very complex feature. And uh, 
yeah, I love I love this piece. I mean, this is again, this is like this is tethered. It's absolute best, I think, because where else are you going to read a piece like this with this kind of focus on the topic in such an interesting way? Um, and yeah, I, I, I thought there were so many interesting elements, and I've, I've sort of um, can't find the, the bit in the piece now. Well, I need it, but there was a bit talking about exactly that. This idea of like it, it sort of links into the actual the evolution of humanity and how we learn and how we teach. And and I thought, yeah, you're right. It's, it's a bit of both, right? And it, that's sort of such a simplistic way of putting it. But it's kind of that's what's happening in this this, this tribe in this culture. They're, they're sort of learning by play. They're learning by engagement, direct instruction. You're doing it wrong, but also just letting them learn themselves, teaching themselves almost peer learning as well. I mean, if you sort of picked that up, I thought was sort of yeah. touched on as well. So, so many elements in a, in a society, which is so different to how, you know, a classroom in, in London or, or Cornwall or whatever, but it, in some ways we're kind of seeing the same things and that's what it means to be a human and, and to learn. And yeah, just a fascinating insight really. So we go to our resident tr trad teacher. <laughs> well, I really liked, thank you. I like, is that my title? Um, yeah. I really liked the, um, the machete, the machete part. Mm. Like, that if something's going to strike fear into any adult idea of small children playing with machetes. But yes. as the article explains, like it's a really important tool. They need to know how to use it because they need to um, clear the rain, clear the way through the rainforest. Um, you know, is it that different to teaching kids how to use scooters than little scooter trikes? And what, what infant playground isn't full of those those little scooter trikes and learning how to use them? And, and okay, less less random but scissors like teaching kids how to use scissors kids learn by you can't you can't do the scissoring for them you've got to let them play with it and learn how to use it so but that's, and that's a really good point because we 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 let we teach children how to use scissors because we know they're going to have to learn how to use them and in, exactly. in this tribe knowing how to use machete and machete being a part of their everyday mm. culture is it, it means it's like to us it's a bit oh god you know but to them it's like well yeah because they have to learn to use machete we can't hide it away from them and the scissor thing is a perfect sort of compasses like, yeah, okay. compasses, you know, lethal, right? It's right, you know, in the wrong hands, stabbing someone in the eye. But a machete, it only seems like super scary to us because we don't use machetes. But kids walk around in um, playgrounds all the time with compasses and in their bags. And I don't know, it's, it's interesting. I think that idea of letting children in a controlled way learn how to use something that's, that could be, could be dangerous is sensible. I, my first thought when reading it was, I, we've spoken a lot to Colvan Atwell as a as a magazine, and he's a head teacher in East London. Fascinating, fascinating thinker about education. And his his philosophy is, you know, he learnt to plaster from watching his dad plaster, and he was saying that trade, that sort of watching and learning, was part of his philosophy of education. So, like in his school, everyone watches everyone else teach. You know, it's not a case that you do a CPD event where it's like, well, I do this and then I do that and then I do this. You go and watch that teacher and it's critiqued and he's making sure that he's the first one who's putting himself on that, you know, in the firing line, as it were, and goes out there. And I thought about it and I thought, do you know what? This isn't just education of kids. What we're talking about is, you know, what is a natural way to learn? And you're always going to naturally learn by copying. It's why, you know, a little plug for the uh, My Best Teacher uh, podcast here. But, you know, I think a point that I saw Charlie Higson make once was that, you know, you catchphrase style comedy is so good because the kids imitate it the next mm. day in the playground, you know, and it's this, you can't help but absorb information when you're having fun or enjoying it. That's not to say there's no direct instruction involved. You know, if you're training teachers, at the moment, it seems to just be a lot of talking to teachers. And actually, where's the sort of, and I'm not going to say role play because everyone will strike 
fear into the heart of every teacher. But there's there, there has to be that practical ex- part of learning as well. Do you remember I did the teach observation piece that was mm. a cover a few a few weeks ago? Um, one of the interesting things that the that a head brought up when I was talking to her about how she trains her teachers, and she was talking about how um, one of the the techniques that she'd come across is that you with your mentor you role play out what it is that you're you know a questioning style or using like an assertive voice and you role play it with your mentor as in like you pretend that you're, you're a teacher and the, your mentor is is a student and you do it again and again until it, until it feels natural and that rehearsal and that's like watching your mentor do it first and then mimicking it back to them it's you, you do you kind of do do it on ITT like in your training I remember having to role play like parents evening when I was training <laughs> and having to be like the the bratty kid who's been brought along and the my the other trainee teacher was being the parents and stuff mm. like that. It, and yeah. it does make it less scary. Well, I remember when I did my first parents evening and thinking back to the role play thing that I did. And it's just something that feels familiar is less scary and less daunting. So it's, it is, it is important. Yeah, definitely. It? it definitely works doing that. It does feel silly when you're doing it, mm. but actually it's like muscle memory, isn't it? Or, it, or it's situational mm. bu- memory building or whatever. We seem to have gone a lot of, off topic from, from the, the piece in a way, but it shows, <laughs> doesn't it? The thread we we pulled out, like, that teaching is this kind of it, it, wherever you're doing it in the world and however you're doing it, whatever the setting, there are some fundamentals that seem to come up. And learning is learning. That's, mm. that's the weird thing. Yeah. And how do we how do we naturally slip in? And it might not be the most efficient way to learn in, in the most natural way. I mean, maybe we need to step out of natural bounds, but it's an interesting discussion. I was just thinking as well, like in terms of journalism, how do we teach journalism? Well, it would probably fit into slightly an abstract category where you directly teach it. But on our course, Dan, I mean, me and Dan trained, trained together. It was almost entirely practical. It was mm, do it was something like, yeah. and we'll critique it and then do it again, basically. Yeah. Well, and how often, I mean, I've said to a lot of students subsequently when I've engaged with journalism students, particularly on the, both where we went and elsewhere, I said, what you're doing here is, is exactly what it's like in the real world. I mean, okay, not exactly, exactly, but it, don't think this is just playing at it. And when you go into the real world, it'll all be different because it's not like they, I was in, in with the students I was working with recently and they were having a disagreement about a headline. And I said to them, I said, you know, this, you might find this annoying, like how long it's taken you to agree, but this is exactly what it's like. You'll yeah. want this headline and your sub editor will say no. And you have to go to the editor and they say, well, what's the, you know, I said that this is what it's like. So don't think this isn't real. And like you're saying, exactly, it's the best way to learn, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're in the workplace, as it were, or, you know, you know that actually isn't this kind of completely novel experience. It's sort of, oh, I, I remember this scenario. And actually, I, we did have to spend, I did have to go and ask someone and, uh, you know, whatever it might be. And yeah, you're right. You know, you learn by, by by engaging in a kind of reality of it, not just reading a book, because that, that can only get you so far. Yeah. I think the danger with features like this one is that people take a, 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 a position hmm. rather than just engaging with you know, the discussion. It's more of a well, I'm a trad teacher, so I think this is rubbish. Or I'm a prog teacher, so I think this is rubbish. Well, actually, it's a little bit more nuanced than that, as we say in journalism. <laughs> um, and I think this feature, if you if you if you treat it as a discussion point and a jump off point, this is what it's meant to do. You can have a really interesting conversation, but if you go at it with an entrenched position, you're not going to get as much out of it. I don't think. Okay, feature three, Gronia. My pick this week is the FEP piece, which I just happened to also write. So hang and on, tell me the... just inter- interrupt here. Like, is this the second week running you've picked your own piece? I back myself. Okay, let's go. And on. I can I just, just point out that Dan that. Dan also picked his own piece, but you didn't 
mock down for that. That's fine. It's cool. Whatever. That um, is a very good point, actually, isn't it? I will put, put myself on the naughty step. <laughs> so this is about the importance of preparing students to take part in their civic duty of voting. So we decided to do this piece because Thursday, the 6th of May, changes history. In the UK, 16 and 17-year-olds in Wales and Scotland will be able to cast their votes in the local elections. Dun, dun, dun. How many took up the opportunity to vote remains to be seen. But we do know that generally getting young people out to vote is quite a difficult thing. We're not, we're not particularly good at it. So in the research of my piece, I found that young people in England are less likely to turn up and vote than their peers in European nations. So whether you're preparing students to vote now or when they turn 18, what can colleges do to help? So I spoke to a range of different people from FE college principals to behavioural psychologists to fake news experts. And the piece is like a smorgasbord of ideas for you to implement at your college or even school, you know, start them early. And one of my favourite stories from the piece was from Graham Rayner at uh, Colter Sixth Form College. And this, we couldn't fit it all in, so there was so much in there, but I wanted to just talk about this because it really did make me laugh. He was telling me how at his college they brought in different politicians to, to talk to the, to the young people. And they, um, they have these hustings and they're always well supported by students and staff and they all fill the hall to capacity. And it's fascinating because these people aren't used to talking to young people. And the, the UKIP candidate came on and started trotting out his usual sociology and media studies and Mickey Mouse subjects. And that would normally play really well for him. But as you can imagine, it went down really badly with the students and they all started to boo him. Um, <laughs> And in the last general election hustings, the Lib Dem candidate was a local councillor, but he kept making these digs about the, the Tory candidate, which probably plays really well for the usual kind of people who attend hustings events. But the kids just didn't get any of the digs, like they just went right over their heads. So he, was, he found that the, the jokes he was making just were landing really flatly. Um, and then one of the candidates was actually a teacher at the college, and he did amazingly well because... He's used to talking to kids. He does that all day. So <laughs> it's just, it, it really did make me laugh. But yeah, really good tips in there. Lots of different people giving their opinions all about getting kids voting. So here's the thing. I can't remember the first time I voted and I'm pretty sure I was in my mid-twenties when I did. And so I throw the challenge out to you both. Can you remember the first time you voted? And how old were you? Well, yeah, I think our age would probably put us in the same it would have been about 2005 wouldn't it because 97 we'd have been just about too young well i yeah. said would have yeah. and then 2001 yeah i wouldn't have, uh no i wouldn't mean no 2001 too young as well so 2005 i remember yeah i remember i remember it was at university mm. and i felt very like yes must go and vote you know but also i remember thinking did it really make a difference yeah. do you know what i mean like that one <gasps> vote no, I mean, I believe in it. No, I just remember, I remember that sense yeah. of thinking, well, like, it is only one vote. So it's, I don't know, complicated one. Go on, yeah? Yeah, like, I, um, my family all go down to vote together, like, like, a, oh. like a family trip. And um, my mum's always really drilled into us. Women died so that I could vote. So I was really looking forward mm. to it. I was really excited about voting. I felt like it was a, like a real achievement that I'd reached the age that I could vote. And, um, yeah, it's... Uh, I think that it's it's just so important, isn't it? Hmm. 
I think it's it's re- like you get into the sort of what you said, Dan, about your vote counting. I think that was my problem with it is that if you live in an area where it's so overwhelmingly one sided and the way the system's set up, I think engagement with politics is really difficult when like Dan's reaction was, what does it matter? And like where I live, I voted in a I've always voted in a way that counteracts the the, the majority in, in my area. And I'm sort of you feel almost like you're throwing it away because it, it's mm. so minimal. Like the numbers are so small. And I think there's a case, I think hopefully when you go down to 16 year olds, 17 year olds, there's going to be this push for proportional representation where actually it's so much easier to, to, to motivate someone. I think if they feel like they're having an impact firstly, but also I think we should be more moving towards more like consensus politics where there is a bit more, you know, at the yeah. time, the 2010 to 2015, was it, coalition, it took a lot of hit. But actually, there was a time when they had to make compromises. And I think mm. we had we had a sort of more moderate mm. government as a result. Yeah, it's it's there's so many aspects. I mean, I say, I mean, so many things I want to say, because like, first of all, when I voted in the Brexit referendum, that was the only time I really felt I genuinely had maybe what you're talking about, that real sense of like, I'm really I feel that really mattered. I went and I cast my vote to mm. remain in the European Union. And obviously it didn't have any impact because we because it lost, you know. But I, I remember that felt far more meaningful in a way. But I don't want people to think that I don't think voting is important. Absolutely mm. is. And, and I cannot comprehend why people don't vote. I just, I mean, if you have a logistical reason why you can't get to the polling station, okay, fair enough. Any other reason, I cannot understand why you wouldn't go and do it. It's so easy. It's so simple. It's so sort of, you don't need to read all the manifestos to have a kind of broad understanding. And to your point there, John, also... Yeah, coalition government gets a bad name, but to me it seems feels like well, surely that is actually in some ways the mo- how politics will kind of have to evolve into this kind of um, consensus, like you say, because that's going to represent most people. But actually, the last few years have shown it's the opposite, where we've gone into very sort of definitive, oh, yeah. simplistic, you know, one sort of track views of things, and everyone seems to like that. So maybe actually that's a sort of a halcyon view that, that won't land. But I've I'm that horrible person with my friends. I've got a few friends that don't vote, and um, whenever they moan to me about anything, I just reply, no vote, no opinion. For women in particular, you know, you, the, the 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 journey that they had to go through there, and the the sacrifice to then hundred years later. But then I suppose you might say, well, it's for democratic rights to not vote, whereas in Australia you have to vote; you are mm. legally compelled. And is that a good is system? Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You get fined if you don't. If you don't vote, and it's like, but is that good? Because then your people it... go and just cast silly but in votes. In Australia, and, no, know. in Australia you can vote like none of the above. Right. So it's then it's all so you do have yourself. a choice as long as you turn up. You can like. You can say... I did not know that. Mm. Mm. But on the point of this piece, and I, di- I didn't know about this Wales and Scotland 16-year-old thing, and I mm. think that's really interesting. And, and I think if that happens in, in England, and I suspect there'll be massive moves to not make it happen, given how young people usually vote, that would surely that would change a lot for teachers because you're going to have then every year, you'll have, well, sorry, every sort of four or five years, you're going to have a cohort who then A, have to go to the polling station on school day, presumably, because it's usually on a Thursday, isn't it? Although, mm. yeah, and it is in term time. Yeah. And... Mm. Would there not be then a need to maybe have not need, but you might feel more compelled to teach politics or talk about politics, or or, is, or does that crush into a grey area where you can't talk about directly? Yeah, and, and you know, interesting. If that changed in England, the whole school system in the UK then would be a very different world. Um, yeah, and I think you'd have more. Do you want to hear some politics voting facts? And more people. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, Gwen, your line is um. So you may have said something really it's, fascinating, but we didn't awful. get it. So we don't know. Um, <laughs> do you want to hear some edit. voting facts? 
I yes, think voting a bit of, fact. This is going to yeah. be, edit is gonna be amazing. Edit. I mean, it's, we're just going to leave it all in. <laughs> I think so. People, people get it right. It's, It'd be basically, fun. listeners, we've had a Zoom moment in in this one. So, um, if there's some dodgy music at places, I mean, we're leaving all this in, Gronia. Sorry, this is all staying. <laughs> you want this to stay? It's not I want us to stay. No, it's all staying. Um, but we both made a great point at the same time. But I think yours was superior because you're going to offer us some light relief. So please. I am. I am. Okay. So. Did you know that American astronauts voted when they were on board the International Space Station? Who did they vote for up there? It was a, they were Texan, so. Uh, that, so what? That, <laughs> please, <laughs> please elaborate without getting us sued. Um, well, no, it's, it's, like they were voted in the. It was a. It was um. Pres- oh, presidential governor. elections. I was president. Oh, I thought you meant they voted for like aliens in space. No. You know, it was like the. No, there aren't really any aliens, Dan. Um, second fact, well, maybe there are aliens, but we haven't seen any. Second fact, in Ecuador, a foot powder stood for a mayoral election and won. A foot powder? Foot powder. Oh, excellent. Do elaborate. Yeah, or can you not because it's a Google fact? No, I've read about it. Okay, carry on. That's pretty much it. it was a protest vote right um the foot powder promised to be really to fix to fix all the foot odor problems Hmm. well that's Hmm. sort of like sort of satirical is it is it i don't know know. maybe they've just got really smelly feet in 1955 the vietnamese prime minister um printed his ballots on red paper which the Vietnamese consider a very lucky colour, and he printed the ballots for his opponent on green paper, which is considered a very unlucky colour. He won with more votes than there were registered voters. (laughs) That's always a sign. Which suggests something even worse going on, doesn't it? (laughs) I mean, I'm sure his excuse was, I just, you know, they like me so much, they they voted twice. They just like him so much. Um, Yeah, and I read about some funny, funny systems where people vote with marbles... And you know, if you hear lots of little like jangly sounds, that means somebody's cheated. Doesn't seem like the most secure system I, I came across, but is, yeah. it, is it better than um, was it the Al Gore election where it was like pregnant? Uh, they called them chads, pregnant chads or something. Do you remember that? No. So in yes, the US, chads. Yeah. yeah, you you punch through the system and it wasn't fully punched through, or it was it was crazy. It's a oh, crazy time. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. So there's, there's yeah. I don't think elections are are, are perfect. Are, are perfect uh no and uh there's that big discussion in the us at the moment isn't there about whether you can give people water in the line mm. um yeah so it's, it's all very odd but yeah i mean 15 16 well 16 and 17 year olds voting seems like a, a sensible move to me really like if you can we can smoke and play the lottery can't you at 16 you pay uh, taxes you've got yeah, pay you national can... insurance so yeah should, which seems like you then for should have a say doesn't it yeah. and also you're gonna live you know, you're going to, even if you didn't vote at that point, you then live into, you, you age into those periods. It feels like, well, you know. Yeah. You're setting the agenda for the next five years, yeah. Well, it's a fascinating uh, issue with the magazine this week. Pick it up uh, for this and so much more, and we'll be back next week. If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief podcast and want to read more of Tez magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.